0: common sense, honest conversation, and thought-provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is the Roundup Podcast. Here now is your host, Jeff Eager. Hello and welcome to the Oregon Roundup Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Eager, recording around 4 p.m. on Thursday, July 20th in my office studio in beautiful Bend, Oregon. Where it is quite hot today, saw some people posting some weather photos of the map of the United States with pretty much the whole country depicted in flames as a result of the fact that it's hot this summer and it's well within the flame zone, so I may incinerate at any point during the recording of this podcast. be warned, be warned. Before we dive into this stuff, just wanted to remind you, it helps us out a lot if you can subscribe to the Oregon Roundup newsletter and podcast at oregonroundup.substack.com. Also subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, etc. So other people can find us if you have subscribed to us on one of those Apps give us a uh, glowing five-star review so that other people can find us too and be tricked into thinking that it's a good podcast. Today, have some good stuff in store for you. We'll start off with Tina Kotek and Earl Blumenauer getting after local officials in Portland about the drug problem on the streets of Portland as though Kotek and Blumenauer have no responsibility for what's happening in that city. We'll talk a little bit more about the Jesse Lee Calhoun matter that I wrote about yesterday. He's the individual who police believe may have killed four women in the Portland metro area. I have some updates on that sad story that just keeps getting sadder in terms of the close misses that may well have led to the deaths of those four folks that began with the commutation of Calhoun's sentence by then-Governor Kate Brown. Then we'll talk about election fraud in the context in which that comes up, and not infrequently when I write things and say, well, basically we need to win elections in order to change this. By we, I mean people who don't like the current direction of the state of Oregon. And then someone in the comments or in emails oftentimes says, well, there's not real fair elections in Oregon. I want to get into that a little bit and what, in what sense that is not true, which is most senses, and in what sense it kind of is true and what that means. Finally, we will wrap up with a discussion of a practice called boofing, which comes to us thanks to the profligacy of the Multnomah County Health Department. If you want to know what boofing is, you're going to have to wait until the end of this podcast I promise you, you will not be disappointed. It is kind of like what it sounds. So let's start off with this Kotech and Blumenauer story. Last week, or pardon me, earlier this week, Nigel Jackwiss, a good reporter at Willamette Week, wrote a story about how Governor Tina Kotech and U.S. Rep. Earl Blumenauer, Democrat from Oregon, are exasperated with the scale of untreated substance abuse on the streets of Portland, where both began their political careers. Obviously, Blumenauer, he's in the House. He's been in the U.S. House forever, best known for wearing a bow tie at all times and also wearing a bicycle pin on his suit to signify his leadership status and membership in something called the Bicycle Caucus, which is made up of House members who like bicycles. That's it. That's what he's known for. The other thing he does is he is one of the leading congressional proponents for federal decriminalization slash legalization of marijuana. Kotech and Blumenauer had this meeting with a bunch of local officials in Portland, and I guess they suddenly realized that the, the drug situation is out of control in Portland. And so they wrote a letter to a Multnomah County chair Jessica Vega-Peterson and Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler said, you guys should do more to fix what Blumenauer and Kotec called a crisis. After a meeting of about 40 political health care and public safety officials that Blumenauer convened in late May, the governor and the congressman told Vega-Peterson and Wheeler they wanted a change in strategy. So this involves appointing a drug czar. And basically what it comes down to is that Kotech and Blumenauer said that they believe that the main thing standing between Portland and fixing its drug problem is that there are too many cooks in the kitchen. There needs to be cleaner lines of authority in terms of who's doing what to address the problem. There's a concern that there's not enough treatment beds or recovery beds in the Portland area and some issues with that. One thing that surprisingly Blumenauer says as well when he was interviewed for this article by Nigel, that he believes there's more than enough money flying around to fix the problem. So there is at least one instance where Earl Blumenauer thinks that there is enough money in play and that it is not a lack of resources, but in his and in Kotec's opinion, it's a lack of focus on the part of local elected officials. Kind of starting at the macro analysis of this, it's a good sign in that now people are public elected officials, Democrats very left-leaning Democrats, are acknowledging that there is a huge drug problem in Portland that should be inescapable. It has been what should be inescapable for quite some time. But we are now to the point in the political discourse where it is so evident that even people like Blumenauer and Kotech feel like they need to do something about it or be seen, more importantly, as doing something about it. So that's a positive. Two years ago, even though the drug problem was horrific in Portland, you didn't have that level of admission from elected officials, Democrat elected officials, about the crisis. So at least now they're talking about doing something about the crisis. Unfortunately, what Blumenauer and Kotech are doing is pointing out what other people, namely local elected officials in Portland and Multnomah County, can do to, to try to fix the problem which ignores, of course, the things that those two can do from their respective positions, one in Congress, one from the, in the governor's mansion in Salem, to do their part to fix the problem. The one that has the most ability to do it, quite frankly, is Tina Kotak. The most obvious thing she could do, she could offer to do, is to support the repeal or pause or modification of Measure 110, and specifically that part of Measure 110 that decriminalized hard drugs, the very hard drugs that are so much concern in the Portland area as they're fighting over which agency should be doing more treatment, which agency should be going out and helping addicts find treatment. Kind of, You read these stories and you wonder, well, we used to have people who did that to a degree, and it was the police when these things were illegal and when there was at least the possibility that police could Sanction someone's police and courts could sanction someone for possession of, of hard drugs. And now police are, for the most part, out of that business in large measure because of Measure 110. And we're trying to put together this hodgepodge of other agencies and people to do what police used to do some of, which is to remind people, hey, it's against the law to do this. And if you get past any certain number of warnings, You're going to have some problems to deal with if you keep using this stuff. Measure 110 made that unworkable as part of a response, and it's contributing to the crisis. I think that almost anyone would agree that it is contributing to the crisis. And Tina Kotek is well placed to have that thing get modified or repealed. She could call a special session of the legislature today, tell them, hey, look at legislation to modify or repeal Measure 110. Measure 110 is not a constitutional amendment. It is merely statutory. So the legislature and COTEC could modify it in any way they chose at any time. We know that polling statewide and even in Portland strongly supports eliminating the decriminalization, so supporting the recriminalization of user amounts of hard drugs like fentanyl. So the public is behind it, and Kotech could, with the snap of her fingers, bring the legislature in and have them vote on a measure to repeal or pause or something to that decriminalization provision that is causing and contributing to so many of the problems she says are catastrophic and a crisis in Portland. Instead, she chose to point fingers, and she and Blumenauer are both, to point fingers. And like I said, a good sign in that at least the problem is so manifest now that they can't avoid talking about it as a problem that needs a solution. But Kotek has immediate ability to make a difference on this issue. And all she needs to do is call the legislature in and have them take a vote. Maybe it goes down. And then in which case, you know, she takes a loss, but she's tried to fix something that Oregonians, the vast majority of Oregonians agree is contributing to this crisis. And she just has chosen not to do that. And quite frankly, from a political standpoint, I don't understand why. The people that still support the decriminalization are are pretty hard lefties, as is KOTEC. And so there are ideological reasons and probably some campaign finance reasons to stick with the program. But my gosh, this is going to be a major political problem for Democrats Heading into the 2024 legislative elections, because they have so far failed to do anything to fix what voters believe, rightfully so, is a major contributor to the drug crisis in Oregon. Kotech could help them out a lot with that by calling a special session. So, moving on from drugs to Jesse Lee Calhoun. That piece I wrote yesterday, published yesterday, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Basically, I go through the timeline of when Calhoun was released from prison early because he had volunteered to do some firefighting with some other inmates when Oregon had those huge firefight, forest fires back in 2020, which 2020, by the way, has to be the worst year in recent Oregon history between those fires and the riots in Portland. 2020 sucked. Calhoun apparently helped out in fighting those forest fires and then Governor Kate Brown issued what's called a conditional commutation of his of his sentence which was his sentence was scheduled to to be through July of 2022 or at least June of yeah, June 30th of 2022 she cut it short by about a year via her conditional commutation his and forty other inmates who had helped with the forest fires. So he's let out in the summer of 2021 instead of the summer of 2022. He had been in for burglary, assaulting a police officer. Apparently he tried to strangle a police dog when they were trying to arrest him. So he was in for some violent stuff, but she let him out early. And then the, as I wrote about, he had a traffic infraction, a violation in October of 2022 that could have landed him back in prison. So the conditions on the conditional commutation granted by Brown included, you can't break any federal or state laws. So he broke a state law that could have and should have landed him back in prison. And now Willamette Week, again, doing some excellent journalism here, has a story today, Thursday again by Nigel Jackwis, and this time joined by Lucas Manfield talking about how in the fall of 2022 may or pardon me spring and fall of 2022 so Calhoun's out doing whatever he's doing there were two incidents where individuals sought like stalking order protections from Calhoun because he was doing threatening things or saying threatening things to him this one guy named Wangrud filed a complaint in May of 2022, and then Ashley Real, who is one of the women who turns up dead, apparently, according to reports filed in November of 2022, an allegation of domestic violence seeking a protective order. Again, in November of 2022, Ms. Real turned up dead early in 2023. Tragically, she is one of the four women who police believe were murdered by Jesse Lee Calhoun. The importance of this new fact reported by Willamette Week is that in addition to the traffic issue that I reported on yesterday, there were these two other legal infractions. Calhoun was caught up in during the time that him doing these things could have and should have landed him back in prison. It should have led to the revocation of his, of the commutation of his sentence, which would have put him back in prison for another 11 to 12 months, beginning whenever that happened. And had that happened, Calhoun would have been in the clank at the time that it appears these four women were killed. And so you can see the importance of what Calhoun's activities, unlawful activities, were or may have been during that time that he was out early, thanks to Kate Brown's commutation. I expect that there'll be a lot more information coming out about this. I saw that U.S. Representative Bence and Chavez Dreamer, the two Republicans in Oregon's House delegation, have asked Kotech to review all of the commutations and clemencies and pardons and whatnot granted by Kate Brown. That seems like a reasonable a reasonable approach. You'd like to think that state officials also would be on board with with such a request. You would think that Kotek herself would be on board with such a request, especially given the amount of attention that this this tragedy has received. Again, Calhoun has not been charged with any crimes related to the four women. And this is all based on reports from Willamette Week and the Oregonian based on police contacts that that they have. They've been pointing to the, the connection of Calhoun with these four deaths. Calhoun's currently in prison in eastern Oregon, serving out the remainder of his term after his commutation was revoked finally in June of this year for unknown reasons could be the reasons associated with two kind of threatening incidents that I was just talking about, or possibly even the traffic thing that I wrote about in my piece. So there'll be more on this. Wanted to update you on that new information since I ran my piece yesterday. If you haven't read mine yet, hope you'll check it out. I wrote it in large measure because I wanted to figure out in my own mind what the timeline was and where the breakdowns were in the system. And there were multiple breakdowns in the system that began with the commutation by Brown, but didn't end there. Obviously people were asleep at the wheel when Calhoun was doing stuff that broke the law and should have landed him back in prison. And he didn't end up back in prison until these women were dead. Somewhat relatedly election fraud. So that piece that I wrote about Calhoun It generated some comments that are not uncommon for me to get, basically around the idea the reason why Oregon is the way it is, which I will describe as dysfunctional, is because there are no real elections here. That someone used the term, they are selections rather than elections. In other words, the Democrats that run the state. Decide who's going to win the elections. And it doesn't really matter what the actual vote totals end up being. It's just preordained that someone's going to win, for example, Kotec in 2022. And this is why Republicans just lose all the time in Oregon. And I can understand that sentiment because Republicans do lose a lot in Oregon. And they lose in situations where the Democrats have performed so badly it's in a way surprising that the Republicans lose, but I don't think that's it. And I, what I said in response to this one comment was, you know, if anyone's got any hard proof about election fraud in Oregon, get it to me. I would love to write about that. If there's something legitimate to write about, that's what I do is write about stuff like that. If it's out there and no one else will report on it, I'll report on it if it's a real thing, but it's got to be, real thing. And I've been involved with elections in Oregon for a long time, decades now, and have been deeply involved with, you know, being in rooms where ballots are counted by county clerk staff going through a recount at the county level. I think I have a pretty good handle on how Oregon's election system works. And I just haven't seen fraud. It doesn't say it doesn't happen. But I haven't seen it, and there's nothing I've seen from the ele- the campaigns and the elections that I haven't been directly involved with that indicates to me that the results were the r- arose from fraud either. I think Kotek won the 2022 governor's race on the rules that were in front of her at the time. Now, was she helped with, you know, having Democratic Party of Oregon spend 500 grand? They got. Uh, via this fishy donation from Nishad Singh when it was probably fraudulently obtained by Singh and fraudulently made to the Democratic Party of Oregon? Yes, she was helped by that. That is a distinct issue, and it doesn't go to the election system itself. Were the votes that were cast counted? Did the candidate with the most votes win? And I, I think yes. Do the unions and the Democrats harvest ballots and make sure that every single one of their voters gets their ballots picked up? Yep. Is that illegal under Oregon law? Nope. ill do illegal things happen in Oregon elections? Maybe. They probably do. But I'd love to know about instances of that happening, especially in large enough numbers to sway the outcome of an election. This certainly wouldn't, I mean, with all the stuff I write about I sure wouldn't put it past some of these folks to abuse and violate election laws. Like I said, I'd be happy to write about it. I just haven't seen it. And without the hard proof, I think that it's dangerous and not helpful for people to think that their votes don't matter, right? Because that's kind of the end result of, well, it's a selection, not an election. And we know that, you know, the powers that be in Salem are never going to select the people. I want, for example, probably most of the people who are listening to this podcast right now, the folks in Salem wouldn't select the people you want either. So if it's a done deal, why even turn out? Why do the hard work to, you know, it's not so hard to vote, but do the work that it takes to win an election, which is tell your friends to vote for so-and-so, really help out and try to win the election. That kind of effort, if you really think that the that things a fraud and that your side's going to lose regardless of what you do, you're not going to do a whole lot. And that's a sentiment that I've noticed growing in Republican circles in recent cycles. And it's not helpful. The fact is until we know that there's a problem with election violations, we have to assume that the elections are fair and we have to win on the, on the rules that those elections are held on. And we haven't, you know, one of the big reasons why, Republicans haven't won in Oregon is because Republicans are a mess in Oregon and have done a poor job critiquing the performance of Democrats and a poor job presenting alternatives, oftentimes, not always. And that's a large part of why we're losing. If we want to change the way Oregon is governed, which is something that has to happen, you know, folks that want to take a different course with the future of Oregon – need to have a different approach and need to take elections seriously and try to do everything they can to lawfully win those elections. That's the way we're going to turn this thing around. It's not by just saying that the elections aren't real in Oregon without any documentation or evidence that that's the case. With the main evidence just being we lose all the time and we're sad about that and we don't want to take responsibility for it. That's that's not evidence of fraud. That's evidence of a party that is destined to lose. We see the result of that right now. So, yeah, election fraud. If you have evidence that it happened, let me know. I'll uh, take a look at it, and if I think it's legit, I'll write about it. I'd be happy to do that. In the meantime, let's win some elections. So I talked. I think it was last week on the podcast about Multnomah County spending eighty-four thousand dollars on snorting kits on smoking paraphernalia to give clean stuff to fentanyl addicts. They subsequently paused that approach, but apparently they'd already spent the money. So the part that they're pausing is actually giving the stuff to addicts. So they've got it, they paid for it, and now they're just not giving it to the addicts. KYN-TV out of Portland came out with this a story about what Exactly, Multnomah County spent their money on. Part of it was they spent it on 55,404 smoking pipes. The varying number of stem bubble hammer and meth pipes cost the county $42,966, so $43,000 worth of pipes. Other major expenses include. $21,000 twenty one thousand spent on hundred and eighty four thousand copper scouring pads and brass screens used as pipe filters seven thousand two hundred fifty dollars worth of aluminum foil and six thousand eight hundred and twenty dollars spent on rubber mouthpieces used to prevent the spread of bloodborne illness and surface germs when sharing pipes they tried to buy some chapstick but the supplier didn't have as much chapstick as they wanted to use apparently, cha- or wanted to buy. Apparently, ChapStick also helps to prevent bloodborne illnesses spreading among drug users. Now, here's the real highlight of this thing. I'm just going to quote from the story, and kudos to whoever got this, whoever writing at KON got this verbatim into this story. Quote, Other notable expenses mentioned in the invoice include $297... <laughs> spent on 20,000 chopsticks used to install pipe filters. And here's the real good part. And a $5 educational pamphlet on boofing, B-O-O-F-I-N-G, written by social activist Ceci Blanchard, titled, A Harm Reduction Guide for Boofing. That is, The Holy Act of Putting Drugs Up Your Butt period end quote if like me this is the first time you've you've heard of boofing apparently it's a thing and it's viewed by some as a potential kind of harm reduction method I don't know why but this Cesie <laughs> Blanchard thinks that boofing is a safer a safer approach to drug use than the other methods she, if you, I went to her website, I'll put all this in the show notes. She says, currently I am a law student, Reuben Presser, social justice fellow and Conwell scholar at Temple university's Beasley school of law. I wield my legal education to expand and enforce the rights of people who use drugs without prescriptions as well as to advocate for a new social contract and political economy that guarantees self-determined care for all. Sounds great. Now we get into the her, her thing about boofing. As an independent harm reductionist, I have spearheaded the popularization of the safer practice of boofing among fellow drug users and harm reductionists, namely through my topic-defining zine, I guess as in magazine. And that is, in fact, the the pamphlet that Multnomah County purchased a copy of for $5 among their other harm reduction expenditures. So this Ceci Blanchard is a law student who is the go-to on boofing, and someone, some lucky person at Multnomah County Health Department is in possession of the county's presumably sole copy of the boofing pamphlet. And so we'll see what comes of that, whether the pamphlet sells them on boofing, and maybe the next time they go buy a bunch of harm reduction stuff, they can buy some boofing equipment, whatever that might entail. But kudos to Multnomah County for spending five taxpayer dollars on a boofing pamphlet, letting me know, and then me letting you all know that boofing exists, at least in a general sense, what it is. and. I'm hoping that this is the last boofing update we have on the Oregon Roundup podcast. And that brings us to the close of our program today. I appreciate you listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll have some interviews coming up shortly. Summertime's just kind of hard to book folks, but have some good stuff coming up and I'll keep you updated on that. Again, if you haven't subscribed to the Oregon Roundup podcast and newsletter, go to oregonroundup.substack.com and go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast app of choice. If you're not a paid subscriber yet to the Oregon Roundup, that helps me justify spending my time learning about boofing and other things that (laughs) may or may not be more serious than boofing. I need to carve out more time for learning about boofing-related things or also not boofing-related things. Anyway, (laughs) that's it. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Roundup Podcast. To share your thoughts with Jeff, you can email him at jeff at oregonroundup.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at oregonroundup.substack.com.